Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a program where we talk journalists and journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device around the globe via podcast. I'm Sharon Davis. This week we're focusing on the extradition hearing against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, currently taking place at the Old Bailey Central Criminal Court in London. The court is being asked to rule on whether Assange should be extradited to the US to face trial on 18 espionage and computer misuse charges related to WikiLeaks' publication of secret US military and diplomatic documents in 2010. They include a charge of recruiting former US Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning to hack into a Pentagon computer network to leak hundreds of thousands of classified documents. In April 2010, WikiLeaks made international headlines when it published one of these documents, the Collateral Damage Video, shot from inside a US helicopter gunship which shows 11 innocent civilians, including two Reuters journalists, being mown down in a Baghdad square. Many more exposés followed, revealing further war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Chelsea Manning was arrested and later convicted. Julian Assange was arrested in London last year when Ecuador abruptly revoked his asylum and expelled him from its embassy after seven years. To discuss the hearings, the background of the extradition and the wider ramifications of a conviction, we're joined by award-winning journalist and author Andrew Fowler. Andrew first interviewed Assange for the ABC's Foreign Correspondent Program in 2010 and has been following the development of the WikiLeaks organisation and the subsequent criminalisation of Julian Assange since then. An updated edition of his book about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks called The Most Dangerous Man in the World has recently been released. Andrew, thanks for joining us. I understand you've been following the extradition hearings online. How would you describe the case as it's playing out in the court at the moment? Well, at the moment, I think you could safely say it's rather chaotic at times because very often the witnesses that are giving evidence can't hear the prosecution and they can't get to the documents that the prosecution are talking about. So the defence witness rely upon the prosecution to read out the words and um, kind of believe that they will be honest in their assessment of, of what the documents say. On top of that, there are a number of problems with the vision, so people often can't see each other. The court has to stop and start which really breaks the flow of the defence, and very often the prosecution too. And certainly it breaks the, uh, the train of, um, of thought of the people that are giving evidence on behalf of Assange. I understand that on the first day of the hearing, a number of organisations such as Amnesty International and others had their remote access to the court revoked by the presiding judge. What was the rationale behind that? Look, all I know is that to get access to this online hearing, you must be a member of a journalist's union. And apparently it's not even good enough to be a member of the MEAA as as I am in Australia. I had to join the International Federation of Journalists and then put that document forward to get access. 
So it's only journalists and only those that are registered by an international body recognised by the UK government that get access to the courtroom to watch it live. And other organisations, such as I understand Amnesty and Penn, have been unable to get access. And I would have thought that such an important hearing that British justice would have been delighted to have opened up electronically its doors to the world to show just how open things were and why they've decided to restrict it to journalists. I would suggest um, you could run a number of theories why that is. Um, it's a, in my opinion, it's a kind of, well, in my opinion, it's a control mechanism. It's a way of limiting the exposure to information to people who may not be governed by the same standards, if you like, as the mainstream media. Um, having said that, I mean, the, the World Wide Socialist Web has got access, so they're on there and they're doing their reporting. So it's not politically restricted, but they're certainly doing all they can to, to stop the world seeing it, uh, the unvarnished version of it. Well, it also goes against a fundamental platform of British justice, which is open justice, isn't it? Well, it does. I mean, the number of seats in the in the courtroom that are available for the public, I think, is about three or four because of social distancing. So if you have the public in the court, which they do, so if they have them in the court, why not, since you can electronically allow everybody to see it, why not allow them? So the answer to that must be some sort of restrictive practice. It can't just be that, well, we just don't allow anybody to see see things electronically because Clearly they do. They allow journalists to do that. So they're allowing hundreds of journalists to see it, but they're not allowing hundreds or thousands of members of the public to see it. And I think that's to do with restricting the message and restrict and trying to control the output. From the moment that the hearing began, uh, there were changes in the charges or in the indictment, the reasons for the indictment put forward by the prosecution team, it's, it's a bit hard to actually understand what's going on there. Could you explain that? Well, firstly, when Julian Assange was removed from the embassy in April 2019, um, he was taken in and held on a breach of bail charge and was then sentenced to, I recollect, 50 weeks, uh, which is the maximum sentence you can get for this rather minor transgression. In the meantime, the Americans came forward with a, a charge which said that he had um, been involved in manipulating with um, Chelsea Manning um, uh, the key to open the um, system by which Chelsea Manning had access to her documents. Um, now, that was a way of protecting Manning. She actually had the right to see that stuff, but. Um, the, the argument was that he was in breach, a technical breach of a computer regulation in the United States. Secondly came the 17 charges of breaches of the Espionage Act, which were a litany of things which um, involved um, helping Manning to um, gather documents, pointing, pointing to documents that were required, um, being involved in discussions, hiding the, those discussions and then erasing them, that sort of stuff. And that was the, if you like, that was the attack on journalism. And that attack was, around the world, was condemned by all the newspapers that have been very lukewarm on, 
on defending Assange. In the court, before this latest court hearing, and this court's been on and off for a while because of COVID, during that time, about uh, the middle of the year, the United States brought in an extra indictment. And that's not a charge. It's just a whole bunch of other information that they've loaded into the charges to say, to, if you like, lower the bar, to lower the bar, and, and then to argue that we're not going for journalists. We're only going for this person who was involved in doing things that were illegal, but not journalistic. The problem with that argument is, and it's playing out right now, is that everything that Assange has done is journalistic and is protected by the implied freedom of speech in the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. So at the moment, the if I can make an observation, the um, prosecution appears to be thrashing around somewhat, trying to not say that Assange is being prosecuted as a journalist, but that he's being prosecuted for doing things that journalists do. So, so they're, in, they're, in my opinion, in a muddle over this. So you think the charges were kind of fleshed out a bit more because of the criticism that they were getting from media organisations that this was directly targeting journalists? Yes, I do think that. I also think that the charges were fleshed out because it became more and more obvious that it would be harder and harder to get a prosecution based on the First Amendment because no journalist has ever been charged under the Espionage Act. And the reason they haven't been charged under the Espionage Act is because of the implied protection of freedom of speech for journalists. And so they were looking at this saying, here's a problem. We cannot, it's called the New York Times problem, which means that if you prosecute somebody under the Espionage Act, who's a journalist, you have to prosecute the New York Times. And as we know from history, that has never happened. So the rush of blood they had to the head to go for Assange and say, journalists don't like him, he's not a journalist, we will just do him under the Espionage Act because he's not a real journalist, runs into this problem with this theory that no matter what you think of Assange, whether or not he's a journalist or not, is actually irrelevant. The point is, he does the work, and he works in a way that journalists work. So if you criminalise that, then you criminalise journalism. Once they realised that, they had to lower the bar and start to say, well, actually, what he was doing was gathering other people around him and exhorting them to break the law. So he was an agent provocateur, and he was a beneficiary of that, of that illegal act. Now, I'm not a legal expert in this field, but it looks a little thin to me, and it looks as though they're lowering the bar as low as possible. I mean, short of it being a violation of jaywalking to the centre of New York, they'll do anything they can, any charge, to get him to America. Which is essentially where Chelsea Manning comes in, because they're now arguing that uh, Chelsea Manning is not uh, in the traditional sense, a source, that there was some sort of relationship between her and Assange. Look, Sharon, they'll do anything they can to push away the source-journalist relationship, to muddy it, to say that um, that uh, 
Manning was operating in a different way from a normal source because once you get the source-journalist relationship, then you're reinforcing the process by which Assange was operating. What implications have these changes had for Assange's defence team? Well, look, I think that from what I can see of it, that they appear to be um, on the front foot. Um, During one particularly robust conversation, um, there was a a cross-examination of of a witness um, by the QC for who introduced himself as, I've got to ask you some questions on behalf of the American government. So it strikes me as an odd way for a prosecutor to work, but um, it looks like they might be trying to put some distance between themselves and that, or maybe that's a traditional way, I'm not too sure, of the way the British courts operate. But there was this uh, um, moment when the, uh, the witness was really doing a very good job of straight batting all the answers back down the line, and the prosecution were getting a little um, a little tetchy. And um, then we came to a break in proceedings. And because of the wonders of the internet, um, the microphones were all live in the court. And so at this moment, the, um, the defense um, QC walks across the court, leans towards the prosecutor and says, are you going to continue banging your head against the brick wall? And the prosecutor says, um, ah, look, um, I'll, I'll just be going on, I'll just be going on. So it was hardly a resolute sort of response. And he looked as though he was um, rather shaken. He was having a hard time in, of, of, winning this, of winning these arguments. And that's certainly the way it's been reported in the first three days, at least, of the case. Now, could you tell me a little bit about the background of the judge that's presiding over the hearing, Vanessa Baretza? Well, unfortunately, I'm not really able to do that because not a lot is is known about her. I know there has been some stuff written on some of the blog sites. Um, but one thing I did pick up in my readings, and I really don't know whether this is true or not. I'd need to, you'd need to um, actually corroborate it in some way. But apparently in extradition cases, I think her success rate on behalf of the prosecution is about is 98%. Um, I'm not sure that's right, but that's what um, I've read. I did read a more credible piece saying that the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, in the UK um, has refused, or the Home Office has refused um, access to her to her records directly um, because people are trying to work out, much as you're asking me this question, you know, is she, what kind of judge is she? Is she a is she, you know, is she is she fair? Um, and from what I've seen of it, by the way, in the court, she does appear to be fair. I mean, twice Julian Assange has has spoken out, um, and he's not allowed to speak in the court. He's in a he's in a, um, a glass cage. It's quite appalling. It's a, like a terrorist holding cell. A shocking thing. A shocking thing to see. Mm. And um, he did. Um, shout out once during the court a couple of days ago, and she warned him that if you do it again, you know. Be careful because I may remove you. I don't want to do that. And then yesterday, during um, cross examination of Daniel Ellsberg, um, he did it again um, because the line that they were taking on the Afghan war logs uh, names being released was just ridiculous. But and Ellsberg was very good and very firm and very strong. But Julian Assange did shout out, and she lectured him again, but but did not remove him. So I mean, to that extent. And there appears to be a fair hearing going on, but I think we'll know how fair it is when the uh, when the judgment comes down. 
There's been an interesting array of witnesses on behalf of Julian Assange. You just mentioned Daniel Ellsberg, who, of course, um, has a long history of uh, uh, releasing the Pentagon Papers to um, a, a publication many years ago, and for that he was jailed. Could you tell me about Ellsberg's um, presence in the court and what he offered in relation to the hearing? Well, what was very apparent was that Daniel Ellsberg, at the age of, he must be 89 now, has an extraordinary intellect and recollection and a very sparse use of language. And his statements from the, from the witness box on the other side of America in San Francisco, where he lives, um, transfixed the court. The, the judge was extremely respectful of him, as was the prosecutor, who had shown, in my humble opinion, slightly less respect for others. But Ellsberg was rock solid. He was absolutely brilliant. Assange could not have asked, not have asked for a better advocate for his cause. And he didn't miss a step, no matter how much the prosecutor tried to trip him up. Uh, for example, saying things like, your Pentagon Papers documents, uh, there were chapters and chapters of them. He said, four of those chapters you didn't release. Four of those chapters you didn't release because they contained names of people that were um, in danger. And so, therefore, you were a good guy. And, of course, Assange, Assange is a bad guy because he released names. And, um, and Ellsberg said, oh, no, on the contrary. On the contrary, I released... I released I didn't release those those four chapters because of peace talks that were going on about the Vietnam War. I didn't want to get in the way of it. But the other, whatever it was, 20 or something odd chapters, I did release. And they were sprinkled with names of people, including a CIA officer who he knew. And he said, and I released that, knowing that that was a, a, a matter of contention. But it was important to release everything so that people could form a judgment on the Pentagon Papers and know that they hadn't been edited. So the importance of that statement was that they were trying to paint Ellsberg as the good guy, and Assange, of course, is the bad guy. And as Ellsberg said, it's quite an interesting trip for me. He said, first of all, when I leaked the Pentagon Papers, I was a traitor to America. I was the bad, bad guy. Then there were a number of years when no one took any notice, and now I'm being wheeled in as being the good guy. <laughs> he said, it's just, you know, it's quite outrageous. He also said very explicitly that Julian Assange would not get a fair trial in the United States. Well, that's really interesting because of that, that of course, is one of the planks of the defence is that he won't be able to get a fair trial if he's extradited. The other plank is that, that these charges are essentially political in nature and therefore extradition should be prevented. What are they presenting to the court as evidence that these charges are political in nature? A number of issues here, but the but the main the main point is this, I can sum it up. In 2010, when the grand jury first sat um, looking at the release of the cables, the Afghan war logs, Iraq, um, and the rest of it, um, the Obama administration, when they came in, looked at the evidence, well, they actually set the grand jury up, looked at the evidence and decided 
not to prosecute, decided that the New York Times problem, the First Amendment, would get in the way. They would not get a successful prosecution. There's never been a prosecution of a journalist in the United States under the Espionage Act. So fast forward six years, and suddenly, with the arrival of Trump, suddenly there's there's a swirling around at the, at the uh, Department of Justice, and and they and they come up with with some charges. They come up with some with some charges that were based on no new evidence from 2010. So why did that happen? Why are you suddenly looking at stuff you've been through, or Justice Department's been through for what six, seven years, and suddenly coming up when you're in office to to charge a person under the, under these um, circumstances? So that suggests that there's a political dimension to this. And that's the main argument that they've run in court, that the political dimension is that Trump wants to get Assange. And if you look at um, what Jeff Sessions, who was one of the, I forget how many attorney generals ago it was, but several um, in the United States, said um, shortly after Trump was elected that Assange was public enemy number one. Then you got the head of the CIA at the time, Mike Pompeo, saying, that WikiLeaks is it's a non-state intelligence agency. So you get that sudden political rush to, to crush Assange. And the question is, why are they doing it? And it, you could surmise, which comes to this issue of this meeting between a senator and Assange's legal team in London, where there was an offer, according to the senator, of a pardon for Assange if he would point to the people who had leaked the um, Democrat National Convention documents, the, including the famous Hillary Clinton documents. And because Assange wouldn't play ball, then you can work out the fact that he's now fallen on the, on the side of the bad guys, and so he won't do as he's told, so they're going to crush him. Yeah, it's very curious, isn't it? Because initially, Donald Trump was reportedly favourable to Julian Assange after the publishing of those emails saying purportedly at a rally, WikiLeaks, I love WikiLeaks. But he's later said that he doesn't know anything about WikiLeaks. What do you believe has essentially changed in the Trump administration? I think that the problem is that Assange won't do as he's told. Um, it's as simple as that. Assange has never done as he's told. That's why he's in a glass cage in the old Bailey. I mean, perfect example of, of journalists. Um, journalists should never do as they're told if they can possibly avoid it. What's happened with Trump is that I think it's just a personal thing. As bizarre as that sounds, why is he going through this? Why is he doing this? Why is he taking on the world media? Of course, because he hates the media because they point out the lies he tells. So that's a good reason to go for the media. But why go for Julian Assange? In my opinion, it is to do with the fact that Russia looms very large in the background of this. The Russians are already at um, trying to influence the, the election in the United States. I mean, it's rather 
it wasn't so dark, it would be quite humorous to think that people are trying to interfere in the elections in the United States when you consider all the interference that the Americans have done in elections around the world, including just recently, by the way, the um, National Archives in Washington released the, uh, the notes of Jesse Helms, who was the um, CIA director during the Allende government's election. And um, Nixon had said, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to stop this guy from being elected, um, strangle the economy until it screams. So, you know, you've got this, you've got this issue of, of Trump um, just, just basically doing a Nixon. Let's just, you know, to crush dissent, to control everything. And that's what he's trying to do with, with Assange. He's trying to make an example of, of him and this is where he's caught. He's trying to make an example of him as a journalist to to stop journalists from exposing his relationships with the Russians. But at the same time, he knows well, he's got a problem with the First Amendment, so he's trying to get around that by saying he's not a journalist. This is an extremely muddled prosecution, and it reeks of political persecution. There's moments in this whole story and in your book in particular where it feels very much like we're in the middle of a Le Carre novel. Um, you just mentioned one series of meetings that uh, Assange had had with the Americans. In your book, you detail other meetings that Assange also had while he's, he was in the Ecuadorian embassy with a US attorney. Uh, trying to broker a deal. Yeah, that's right, and um, and that was just a straight case of how are we going to end the impasse in the embassy, and what can be done to um, settle the problems that Ecuador had at the time, with the never-ending occupation and the fact that Assange wanted to get out. I mean, he'd been tortured for seven, nearly seven years in there, according to United Nations report. I mean, how Assange has remained sane and, and in any kind of health, I have no idea, but he has. So he's he's keen to to talk about the process by which he might be released. And at one time, the offer was he might be offered a free passage. And it was unclear whether that would be to the United States to give evidence um, in, uh, in an investigation or whether he might um, get a passport and be able to leave the country. So all these things were open, and this was a, this was the um, Department of Justice that he was talking to, and so it was an open it was an open discussion about how to resolve this issue. Um, all that came to an end when, uh, as a result of James Comey, who was the former director of the FBI, saying he didn't want any more the talks to go ahead anymore, but the um, I recollect, I think it was the Senate um, Intelligence Committee and and the attorney, Waldman, who who said, well, look, we'll press on with this. And they, and they did press on, despite the FBI saying they wanted to cut all contact with Assange. What you can make of that is that, um, is that when everything fell to pieces in the middle of the year and the Waldman Department of Justice discussion broke down, it was because... Assange had just smelt a rat. There was a there was a problem here. The FBI had um, some time ago uh, made that point that they didn't want the talks to go on, and then and then but then you've got this issue of how much longer am I going to be able to be here? 
how much longer will I be able to be in this place before the cops come in the front door? And that kind of pressure on him, he was feeling, I think, at that time. So those, those things are playing out. Now, later on, of course, comes the senator and with the, with the so-called offer of um, freedom, if you'll point at the um, people who, who leaked the, um, the documents, point away from Russia or point towards, I, I should say, the, the leakers, which, of course, Assange wouldn't do. That, that's the picture of, of that rather rocky relationship and these back-channel discussions that are going on inside the embassy. It's also become clear that the Ecuadorian embassy was bugged and Assange's conversations were being monitored during his last few years there. Can you tell us more about who was behind that bugging? Yeah, there was a Spanish company called Undercover Global and they were employed by the former Ecuadorian government, President Rafael Guerra, Guerrero, to um, provide security for the embassy, just as you would have any kind of security. Any embassy would have security, make sure the doors are closed and no one's breaking in and all that sort of thing. In um, 2015 or 2016, things started changing and, and the cameras that had been there to just record the comings and goings in the embassy, pretty low resolution, suddenly became upgraded, I think it was 2008-17, and they installed microphones in them as well. Now, the company called UC Global, as I say, had been employed to provide security for the embassy, but we know that the CEO of UC Global has told a number of people that the reason the cameras were upgraded, the microphones were installed, because they were also working for United States intelligence. How do we know this? Well, there's a case going on in Madrid at the moment where David Morales, who's the CEO of UC Global, is charged with that specific offence of having spied on client um, lawyer meetings, which is an illegal act in the European Union and in Spain in particular. So he's on trial for that. Um, What we know is that the information travelled from the uh, embassy in London. It went to a computer system which was partitioned where one side of the computer sent information of the recordings of vision and sound of Assange meeting his lawyers in the embassy to the Ecuadorian government, and the other one went to the United States intelligence organizations. Now, which intelligence organizations they are, I don't know, but I've managed to trace by putting together um, conversations that were had with journalists, repeated to Assange, and then been relayed back to the source, who completely freaked out and said, why did you tell Assange that? I told you that in confidence. There's a massive investigation at the State Department. My friends are going crazy. The question is, how did he know that? How did he know that the people he briefed had leaked to Assange because Assange had been recorded and had come back down the line and through to the State Department where Mike Pompeo um, was now a Secretary of State 
Is the bugging of the embassy and of the conversations between Assange and his lawyers one of the defence's planks in this extradition hearing? Yeah, it's my understanding that it is, and that they will be bringing that information into the court to make that argument, that they will actually say that, as I've just described, this is what happened. And it's my understanding, according to a statement made by European lawyers' organisation, that even if the prosecution didn't have direct access to the information that was being gathered as Julian Assange met with his various lawyers and discussed his political, his, his sorry, his um, strategy, uh, his defence strategy, even if they didn't have direct access to the information, the fact that they knew about it would be enough to have the case thrown out. Now, that might be a high call by the European Union of, of lawyers, but it certainly is a case of, of, of great focus by the defence to make that point. And making that connection is, I would have thought, one of, the, one of the major efforts that they'll be putting in to try to join up those dots to link up the information which I understand ended up in the State Department. Who knew about it? Who would have known about it? Did Justice know about it? Did Pompeo tell um, Trump? Um, almost certainly, he almost certainly we know that the um, information went to Trump Jr. because the person who was the leaker to the journalists who spoke to Assange was an advisor to Trump Jr. So we're in the White House here. We're in the area where the president is apparently making offers to Assange. Tell us where the leaks came from. Get off my back and it'll be sweet. And we'll drop the charges. And his son, who's actually been privy to information, it would, you could ascertain, you could guess from the source that leaked the information to the journalists about conversations with Assange. A number of journalism academics have been called to give evidence on behalf of Assange. What's the significance of their testimony, do you think, Andrew? Well, look, what they're saying is this is the process as we understand it. And there's a number of QCs and people who represent Reprieve and other organisations giving evidence to say this is what it's like on the ground in America. And so when the prosecution says things like, Oh, well, you know, according to the um, statute of laws governing prosecution, there's a separation between the Attorney General, the President, and the Justice Department. They are completely separate bodies, and there should be no influence at all. And they, these guys just then say, well, look, let me tell you about this. And they just trot through all the pressure that's put on the prosecutors for various cases, particularly in the Eastern um, Court of Virginia. And they cite the and they cite people that have spoken out and say, well, look, we uh, we have one of the we have one thousand lawyers who wrote complaining about the pressure that the government was putting on people to prosecute or not to prosecute. Then they quote the case of uh, of Cohen who who uh, who had his uh, case quashed, his his sentence quashed, and Stone uh, who who's um you know who also had his um his sentence quashed. 
And they say, so this is a president who just interferes, intervenes, leans on everybody. And that, that's what it's like in America. You know, don't tell me what the textbook says. I'll tell you what it's like to live here. And they just, they are, um, they are great witnesses to the catastrophe that's occurring in the United States. What of Chelsea Manning in all of this, Andrew? Um, having served a prison sentence and been released a couple of years ago, she's also been under intense pressure recently in regard to this, hasn't she? Well, she was while the grand jury was sitting. Um, and she, what they were trying to do was to make the case that Assange was running Chelsea Manning and, was, and that uh, he was doing all these... Um, you know, all these directions, he was telling her what to do. She was just basically somebody who was just a, um, uh, a puppet, if you like, and he was he was directing her. And uh, they wanted her to say, yes, Assange spoke to me. He said he wanted this. He said he wanted that on Gitmo. He wanted the Iraq war logs. He wanted more on this, more on that. And she refused to give evidence uh, in what she called a secret trial. She said, I'm not going to be part of this. Um, and she stood on her principles and she spent a few more months in jail as a result of that until the grand jury ended and then and then she was freed because you can't hold somebody who won't give evidence to a grand jury that doesn't exist. So resolute, principled, extraordinary, extraordinary to have gone back into prison having been freed and to have maintained her integrity and so now we come to these you know, these um these charges that we now see where they're dealing with trying to get away from the fact, the fact that Assange was behaving like a journalist and yet trying to prosecute him for it and saying that the first amendment doesn't really matter in 200 years or whatever it is, no journalist has ever been prosecuted on the First Amendment, with First Amendment protection. No journalist has ever been prosecuted under the Espionage Act. So Manning's, Manning's standing firm has helped Assange incredibly. But even if she had given evidence to the grand jury, it's very, it's very questionable about whether it would have made any difference because Assange was just behaving like a journalist. They have this real circular argument problem for prosecution. And as I say, it'll be really interesting. You ask me whether it's a what kind of trial it is, well what sorry, what kind of hearing it is, I suppose the answer will be in in the judgment. And we mustn't forget that no matter what the judgment says, I would think that both sides, either side, will um ask for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. How is Julian Assange holding up through all of this? There has been discussions at times about his mental health and his risk of suicide. Well, look, I, I haven't seen Julian, Julian Assange for four years now, it must be. But he's amazingly resilient. And he's amazingly um, unlike he's painted. I mean, I'm sure it can be difficult, but, you know, I mean, can't we all? And uh, he is extremely resilient, as I say, and has a mind, an extraordinary mind. The reason he's being prosecuted is because he's so much of a threat, because he is so bright, because he is so clear, and because also, for him, unfortunately, he is so right. 
how his health stands up, I don't know. He certainly had a chest infection in 2012 and uh, doesn't seem to have gone away. Um, in, in court, he's masked up in his glass cage, socially distanced between two security guards or prison guards. Um, his, uh, his mental capability, I understand, for people that have met him in prison, been to Belmarsh, the super max security prison full of murderers, you know, and Julian. Um, they, they say that uh, he, um, he's sharp, you can still see it, but he's, you know, he's, he's, he's being worn down. And from what I hear of some of the maximum security prisons, the maximum security prison where he may be held, it's, uh, it would be hell on earth to be held there. Um, they, they would hold him in maximum security, um, not, of course, um, you understand, for punishment, um, but to um, make sure he didn't reveal any other secrets to anybody else. So he'd be unable to speak to anybody. And he'd get one hour a day out in the yard at night so he didn't meet anybody. He was such a, a national security threat. It is truly shocking. It's truly shocking that journalists in this country, apart from the MEAA, by the way, they're doing a fantastic job, but the the um, the troops, the people on the ground, the journalists, they're not up in arms about this, and they should be. It's quite extraordinary. It's simply because Assange is not, quote, one of us, one of the mob. He's, he's the outsider. But I always thought journalists were supposed to be outsiders. I didn't think they were supposed to be insiders and that's come an unfortunate time for Assange as journalism's got more inside it's looked um, it's looked um, askance at those on the outside whereas that's in fact where they should be so he's somewhat marooned there um, I, I'm hopeful that um, in the event of there being uh, what I hope for is acquittal but in the event that there's not and the event that it goes to the Supreme Court, I would, I would hope that journalists would really wake up to what all this is about and how it endangers all of them. Everybody, every single journalist that writes any story that the United States considers to be damaging to its national interest runs the risk of being extradited. Now, if that doesn't um, grab your attention... I don't know what what would. I think that's probably a pretty good place for us to end this, Andrew. Um, thanks very much for uh, your vigilance around this case and uh, and the book, which is, you know, a terrific read, The Most Dangerous Man in the World. I think it certainly, um, you know, really puts the case very well for both uh, Assange's activity and WikiLeaks and the importance of it over the years that it's, um, it's been around. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. And Andrew's updated book about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks called The Most Dangerous Man in the World is now available in bookshops. And if you want to follow what's going on in London at the moment, there's some really good things happening on the internet one of the great sites to follow is the Courage Foundation, which is uh, both tweeting the hearings itself and it's also detailing every night what's gone on in the extradition hearings through the day. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. 
This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends about us. We'll be back for more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to producer Anthony Dockrell. My name's Sharon Davis, and thanks to you as well for listening. Mm-hmm.